0: As engineers, we probably understand how clinical trials are used to validate the effectiveness of new drugs or treatments, but how and when can clinical trials be used to validate the effectiveness of new healthcare technologies? Hello and welcome to the Evidence Space a podcast produced by the Institution of Engineering and Technology, which presents conversations from leaders from health, care, and life sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bannister, and in this episode of The Evidence Space, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Adam Hill, CEO of OnCommune, and Jeff Ventimiglia, Senior Vice President of MediData Solutions. Adam, Jeff, welcome to The Evidence Space. Great to be here, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Could I ask both of you to begin by introducing yourselves and providing us with a fun fact?
1: No, delighted to. And thank you very much, Peter, for in, um, for inviting us along. Um, so, Adam Hill, I'm the chief executive of Oncommune. I uh, I trained as a clinician. I have a, a PhD in, in engineering um, and via business school ended up in, in, a, in industry about a decade ago, um, where I've principally focused on developing sensors or diagnostics and all of the back end. Um, data analytics and decision support systems in order to, um, to drive better clinical decisions. On is a company that's 17 years old um, and has focused throughout its history, um, having spun out of the University of Nottingham on detecting cancer earlier um, than other, other biomarker-based approaches. Um, and today we sell both products to screen for cancer, lung cancer being a a major focus for us um, with liver and prostate cancer um, rapidly developing evidence and the, the on the other side of the house we, um, we sell services into, into CROs and pharmaceutical companies as they look to stratify patients into, um, into clinical trials. One fun fact um, is that I uh, once upon a time was the, um, was the regimental medical officer to the household cavalry which meant on ceremonial duty, I was the, um, the, the, the Queen's doctor, Also, I believed. Um, it wasn't until I stood on parade my third time that, in fact, my services were required, potentially, as one of the royals slipped as she got into a carriage, and I, I leapt forward. Of course, I didn't need to, need to intervene, and she was bundled into the carriage, and the parade continued um, as, as it needed to. Um, Only about 10 minutes later, however, the adjutant, um, the chief operations officer, if you like, for the regiment, sidled up to me and gave me a nudge and said, Doc, next time a royal family member looks like they're going to fall, please wait to be given permission to approach because the snipers on the roof get very excited.
0: I, I struggle to think of a more stressful clinical situation. Jeff, could you introduce yourself to the audience of the evidence space as well?
2: Absolutely, again, uh, Jeff Benzmiglia, and thanks for having me, Peter. I am the Senior Vice President of Product Operations and Enablement and Metadata Solutions. Uh, for those of you unaware of metadata, we are a um, clinical trial technology company. Uh, we created a platform on which we run multiple clinical trials across the globe. Um, and as the head of product operations, my job is to manage the day-to-day operations of our R&D group, which is basically the development and deployment of our software out into these clinical trials. I also manage all of our end-user training, so making sure that the individuals that will spend a lot of time on this call talking about know how to use this uh, technology and it's enabled for them uh, to run their clinical trials. So. Um, A bit of my background. I've been in clinical research my entire career. I've been on both the operations side and the technology side. Um, This is my fourth clinical research platform that I have worked on in a a product management sense. So uh, I have a lot of experience on bringing both devices and uh, medicinal treatments to the market using different technology solutions. Um, And it's really, I think, a, a great opportunity to spend some time today to talk to you two. Um, in terms of a fun fact, I really am, am going to get blown out of the water with tending to the royal family, but uh, as much as I do love technology, uh, I am an audiophile and listen to all of my music on the oldest form of analog that I possibly can and have been collecting vinyl records uh, for the, the past 10 years now. And I I actually, every time I get to take a trip, whether it's overseas or anywhere in the U.S., I make sure to stop by a shop and bring home a, a record from wherever I visit. So. Uh, it's growing quite uh, quite large now. We have records from uh, all over Europe, uh, Asia, and the US in our house at this point. So again, Peter, thanks for having me
0: today. That's brilliant. I'm sure there are a number of audiophiles in the audience who'll appreciate that. I think what's really interesting about both of you is not only have you got a lot of experience as the developer of new technologies, which in itself needs to undergo clinical trials, but you've also been incredibly active in developing technology to deliver clinical trials themselves. That's definitely something I'd like us to explore in this episode. So let me start with a general question. Why would you even need to carry out a clinical trial for a medical device or a diagnostic?
2: Absolutely. I
0: think... uh you know what we are talking about
2: here and why this is such an exciting space to be in is uh is is the scientific method and really that we are creating a hypothesis on how a treatment or a device will work in an actual human being right and uh, as our health and our our lives are pretty much the the most important part of our of our being, it's very important that we test and make sure that everything we are um, providing as a treatment to a patient is safe for them to use and it's going to actually achieve um, the outcome that, you know, the successful outcome that we've put before it. So, um, clinical research really is a, a giant experiment, right? We set that hypothesis to make sure that we have an effective and safe treatment for our patients. And we go out into the world to make sure that um, when we introduce this um, intervention whether it be um, medicinal or device um, that we are actually achieving that successful outcome while at the same time making sure that the patient um, remains healthy and is safe right we don't want to have a negative impact on a patient's life because we haven't properly tested uh, those treatments in a clinical trial and so Uh, As a a new drug or a new device is introduced into the clinical research paradigm, you go through multiple phases of development where you um, test a very small group of individuals to make sure it's safe. You start expanding your patient population to make sure that uh, you are achieving the efficacy that you are looking for and continued safety. Um, and then ultimately making sure that you are looking at a large enough and diverse enough population of potential patients to make sure that this drug or this device is doing what you intended to do um, before you uh, kind of unleash this onto the the medical population. So it's very important. And I think, you know, as we talk today, you know, the, the kind of underlying theme that we'll continue to talk about is uh, the patient being first and patient safety being the
0: utmost of importance. You've touched on a few topics that we've explored or are going to explore in other parts of the series, but it's the role of the patient that I'd like to be able to focus on in particular. Adam, you've had first-hand experience leading the development of sensors and also more recently a major diagnostic test through a global clinical trial. But for engineers who are starting out on this pathway, what kind of things should they consider? In other words, how can they make an early determination as to whether or not a clinical trial might even be necessary for the technology they're working on? Well, I
1: think you know, from a from a user's perspective, um, there's there's really two reasons to be entering into a clinical trial. The first is to, to overcome the regulatory hurdles that are there in place to protect patients um, and clinicians when they use um, when they use um, a device or a diagnostic. Um, but but more more importantly, to start to um, also develop the evidence required in order to. Um, allow your product to be adopted by those people that can start to start to use it in, in clinical practice. Um, one doesn't work clearly in isolation um, of the other. And so there's really three things that I think um, uh, I certainly consider when, when thinking about the evidence that's required in order to, um, to, 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 to prove the safety of a device and also demonstrate um, through evidence generation um, that a device is going to have an impact on patient care, and that is what what is the clinical utility? Can we demonstrate the clinical utility of, a, of, of an asset? That's essentially the effectiveness of um, of, of the product. Um, the second is: can we demonstrate that the product um, has no or limited harm um, uh, when it's used in a clinical uh, a clinical situation? Can we quantify um, the, the, the the harm that? Um, either intended or or as an unintended consequence of um, of use of the product, such as the diagnostic pathway or a treatment pathway has changed as a result of use of the product? Um, And then finally, um, can we start to build evidence around the the cost and the health economics of um, um, of the product? Because if those three things, um, whether it's a device or a diagnostic, that ultimately um, clinicians, payers, providers, of care are going to be going to be interested in.
0: So that's three very clear questions. Once you understand how you can ask those questions, how do you then go around reconciling any differences between the approach for a drug versus a device versus a diagnostic versus a digital health intervention, for example?
2: I mean, the, the uh, it's very interesting, in a, you know, uh, being a tad bit U.S. centric here, even when you're looking at the FDA and how these different types of uh, products are approved, there are different divisions within the FDA for each one of those, right? So you're looking at a completely different pathway developed by a completely different group of people. You know, I... I Honestly, you know, therapeutics, and when I say that, I mean more, you know, medicinal. Whether it's uh, an infusion, taking a pill, something, uh, you know, like that, a, a drug that you would think of, is probably the most uh, rigorous and has the most experience on how it should work. I think that's where we kind of started as our base case. Um, you'll see a lot more trials for, uh, you know, medicinal treatments than any other type of, of treatment out there. I think what you're starting to see now is the device uh, sphere is, is growing rapidly, right? And when you think about devices, you know, many people's mind will go immediately to something like a, you know, a hip replacement or a knee replacement, but uh, devices actually range all the way from, you know, a very high level risk to an implanted device, all the way down to a piece of software that you as the patient may not ever even interact with, right? And so. When you think about how those different tools work, um, you're going to have a whole different, uh, you know, uh, process in which you go through that clinical trial, right? Um, and then finally, I think, you know, getting into uh, to diagnostics and to sensors, I still think we're a bit in the, the Wild West of how, um, how we are going through that process and how we are, are proving that those different sensors and devices um, are, are living up to expectations, right? Um, you know, uh, and maybe I'll pose this question to Adam because, you, you know, you are in the sensors field. But, you know, when you think about putting something in it as a device or putting it in a clinical trial, you have something like an Apple Watch or your iPhone that tells you how much you walked and what your heartbeat every day. But, you know, are you going to be confident that Apple has created that, that watch or that iPhone to be accurate enough to make a clinical decision in a clinical trial, right? And I'd be interested, Adam, with your background and just kind of understanding how we get to a level of regulatory confidence in some of these sensors.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, it's, um, I think it's incredibly difficult. And I, I concur with your um, your. Uh, your statement that, that, that it's um is very much the wild west many of these devices of course um don't in the first instance anticipate having to undertake a clinical trial they were um originally developed to be consumer products um, yep. and in, in many ways they still are consumer products but have started to enter into that gray area between um between healthcare and um, and a and a wellness a wellness product um that Um, that has challenged um, regulatory authorities, not just in in the U.S., but also um, here in Europe and and, um, in in Japan. Um, So so how do you overcome that? Um, Well, look, irrespective of the brand and the money that you can put behind these assets and, of course, (laughs) the mass adoption that you can achieve, um, uh, no one is above um, the need to perform appropriate clinical trials to overcome the regulatory hurdles that are put in place um, put in place today now having said all of that of course um, if you come out of the gate as a consumer product and um, you have the opportunity to um, as long as you're not infringing in any way um, uh, the regulatory processes um, uh, you have the opportunity to generate a significant amount of data um, and so, um, the, the, the role of real-world data um, outside of the, um, the, the prospective clinical trial environment that um, up until very recently has really driven um, the evidence base underpinning therapeutics and devices um, uh, is an interesting one. Um, it's an interesting one because the volumes of data um, can, be, can be immense um, yep. outside of that, um, that, structured, that structured environment.
2: And I mean, we we'd be remiss, and I talk about the the current situation right now. I mean, as we think about you know COVID and the pandemic, and and you know what we're seeing is a lot of stay at home orders across the globe. I mean, these are becoming so much more prevalent in our our day to day, right? Because you want to be able to, um, you know, you want to be able to ship a a potential treatment to a patient at their home, have them plugged into their you know again whatever brand device that you want to use. Um, and then are confident that they're they're tracking those things, right? I think that was the, the biggest change that we are seeing from COVID is really the uh, the virtualization of these clinical trials, which um, you know leads us to be needing more devices, more sensors, more diagnostic tools that are um, you know that we can rely on, that are user friendly enough that they can use them, and that we can trust the data on them. So. Uh, it's just it's going to be, I think, um, you know, very important that we have collected all this data, you know, whether it is a watch or a different sensor, and be able to use that to to show the kind of variance and how how accurate, um, you know, those those different sensors are for a clinical trial.
1: And of course, Jeff. I mean that mirrors the virtualization of clinical care. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, I think if uh, if we were sat here in January of this year, having a very similar sort of conversation. It would require a pandemic and um, to drive many <laughs> systems into yes. adopting some of the some of the, the technological solutions that we've been using for five years or more um, on a on a smartphone in order to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of care delivery. Um, today we're seeing so much more of that um, and not before time. Um, and of course, I'm delighted to see that that's being mirrored in, in clinical trial design also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: But I think that's a great topic to bring up because one of the first things that people in the industry became aware of when COVID emerged, maybe after first realising that it was going to be much harder to deliver non-essential procedures, was to realise how it was going to affect clinical trials, which of course require participants to come into a physical centre to deliver their data. You've touched on how this has really spurred on a more decentralised approach, which seemed to be emerging at least a lot more slowly pre-COVID. I'm keen to understand if there are any other impacts as Adam, you've said it would have been seen as a luxury as recently as the start of the year. Do you think this decentralized model is here to stay, even after we come out of the current global situation?
2: Yeah, so I, I will go ahead and jump in there. I think um, you know you you uh, you hit the nail on the head, and it's something that I think in clinical research for those of us who spend our career in it are, are constantly you know grappling with is patient ID and, and patient recruitment into clinical trials. We have a, a whole kind of uh, sub industry within our our industry called feasibility, which is really the concept of uh, understanding where you are going to go out in the world and, and find these patients. And to be honest, there is still a good chunk of trials, whether it's diagnostic, whether it's devices or uh, you know a treatment where it's simply because the patient walked in the door, right? They came into to their doctor, they ended up having that, um, that ailment and they were put on that clinical trial. Um, and this has been the kind of standard for you know a good half a century now, and we're going to have to really change the way that we think about this and This goes to you know adam's point about data right like and we need to have a better and uh, more streamlined approach on how we're capturing and using data um, I won't get into to privacy at the moment, so let's kind of set that one aside but we need to be able to capture all of these different devices, all of these different, um, you know, uh, visits to, to hospitals, different genetic testing, all of the things that we are doing to better be able to pinpoint where these patients are and reach out to them. Um, because right now, you're you're going to have a decrease of patients who want to go in the hospital. If you are not, you know, in a life-threatening situation you're most likely going to weigh, is it worth me walking into the hospital and potentially getting sick? And that's even before you take on the risk of joining a clinical trial. So we need to be better at actually using all this underlying data um, to go out to find patients to build these clinical trials. And, um, you know, we could spend all day talking about interoperability and how that all works. But, you know, that means that us as an industry, we need to get much better at and standardizing and harmonizing that underlying data so that we can use it.
1: Certainly, you know, patient recruitment and retention is a massive issue um, in, in, in clinical trials. And I, I, I hope that um, the, um, this, this current pandemic um, does make many of the tools that has improved the patient experience, um, both engaging with the clinician um, as well as engaging in, in a clinical trial. Are are sticky Um, um, because because, uh, engagement in those clinical trials is so desperately important in order to advance our our evidence base. Um, Many healthcare systems, for a decade or more, have spoken about putting in place the infrastructure to become learning healthcare systems, um, uh, contributing to the evolution of of that that evidence base. Um, but, But finding the right patients for trials and having those patients um last the length of the trial um, is is incredibly important and I'll, I'll share one anecdote with you I, we we um uh, about three years ago um, we um, we started to recognize that our biomarker class um, was being picked up by academic teams that were looking to do just this um uh, you'll be aware as your listeners will um, that um, a, a very large um, uh, opportunity has ex- has grown over the last decade in immuno-oncology, this idea that you can, you can, um, you can take the brakes off the immune system and it runs rampant, um, uh, affecting your cancer in up to 25 or 30% of patients that are exposed to this form of therapy, but equally um, affecting other cells and organ systems, um, as maybe an autoimmune d- disease does. And, and the balance um, uh, uh, of... Therapeutic benefit versus therapeutic harm um, is incredibly difficult, um, incredibly difficult to judge, and as a result, uh, many trials in uh, in oncology have to over recruit, and because they lose patients to follow up um, as um, as as they suffer the the side effects, often minor but unpleasant side effects, and um, when you're suffering suffering a um, a disease, and so so we we actually developed a panel to stratify patients into better understand those that may respond positively to um, the, the immuno-oncology asset, whilst also understanding those patients that might respond negatively. And we know about 75 or 80% of patients go on to get a minor um, uh, side effect as a result of uh, immuno-oncology. And, and that panel today is um, is being used extensively by a number of, a number of um, pharmaceutical companies to, to stratify patients to better retain um patients onto, onto clinical trials.
0: Adam, Jeff, thank you very much. Th- there's so much more that we could discuss. And in fact, I'd like to continue this conversation in our next episode. Today on the Evidence Space, we focused on the topic of clinical trials. Clinical trials form an important component of a comprehensive panel of testing, which can be carried out on a new healthcare technology. Clinical trials offer unique insights as to how our technology is gonna behave in a very complex and messy environment, the real world and as such they can produce results which don't always line up exactly with the results that we've previously obtained in a laboratory or benchtop setting. We've heard how COVID has had a practical impact on the ability of manufacturers to carry out clinical trials. It's no longer straightforward to bring patients into a hospital setting to collect data in a trial and so this has placed more emphasis on decentralized trials where data is collected directly from the patient in many cases by the patients themselves in their own environment. Join us on the next part of this episode, where we'll talk about the way that data collected from healthcare devices can enhance the delivery of clinical trials, and more generally, how technology is being used to enable faster and more effective clinical trials of all forms of interventions. We hope that you found the information presented in this episode useful. As always, if you have questions, or suggestions for future episodes of The Evidence Space, please get in touch with us. Thank you very much for listening.